But I, I think that's ultimately my biggest takeaway is that we played a role, albeit perhaps a, a small role, in explaining to the world what's happening you know, as Russia has invaded Ukraine. Um, we do this around the world for a lot of different things, but this conflict, I think, will always stand out in my memory as a historical time. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again, and welcome back. This month, the Downlink Podcast is looking at the war in Ukraine. This Friday is February the 24th. A year ago, Russia, without provocation, invaded Ukraine. If you haven't yet had the chance, I strongly suggest you have a listen to last week's episode. It explains just how Ukraine has leveraged third-party space assets to gain strategic decision-making advantage, and why this war is a preview of how conflicts will be fought in the future. And what's really important to understand is the fact that most of these space assets or the data products from space assets that Ukraine is using are from the commercial space sector. You no longer have to be a spacefaring nation to use space with devastating military effects. Beyond the bottom line, this evolution in modern warfare has implications for space companies, but also for national security and defense policy. Make no mistake, Russia understands the importance of space. It has not merely threatened to target commercial space operators. In November of 2021, as it was positioning its troops along Ukraine's border, Russia conducted an anti-satellite test that destroyed one of its satellites in low Earth orbit. And just before Russian President Vladimir Putin kicked off his war, the Russian military's cyber warriors attacked Viasat, which is a global satellite communications provider headquartered in California. Now, at the time of the cyber attack, Viasat provided services to the Ukraine government. The attack not only disrupted Ukraine's communications, it fried satellite modems that consumers use in their homes for TV and internet. That attack also paralyzed thousands of Germany's wind turbines. The operators used Viasat to monitor and control the turbines that reportedly generate 11 gigawatts of power. And power generation is officially considered a critical infrastructure. Attacks on space assets and the effects are no longer theoretical. And there's something that the White House, the U.S. Department of Defense, NATO, and our security partners need to grapple with. To understand the policy questions that must be answered, we've got space and defense policy experts Chris Stone and David Burbach. But first, we're going to hear about the commercial experience of this war from Maxar Technologies' Steve Wood, who is the senior director of the company's news bureau. Here's our conversation. Hi, Steve. Hi, Laura. It's great to have you back on the podcast. It's so nice to be able to speak with you again, too. As it's been a while since you've been on the podcast and the audience has grown, take a minute and introduce yourself, Maxar Technologies, and what you do at Maxar. Of course. So again, as you said, I work for Maxar Technologies. We are a 
space infrastructure and an earth intelligence company. Um, the line of business that I am most uh, really familiar with and, and really focus my time on is that earth intelligence piece. It's a euphemism in a sense, but think of it as satellite imagery that we are collecting all over the world. And my job in particular is to work with the news media to help explain and visually really detail what we are seeing all around in global events. You know, this month marks a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. A lot has happened. I've asked you to come back because I think there's a lot of wisdom, likely more than what I can reasonably fit into just this segment, that Maxar has gained as a space company that is somewhat involved in a war, not as a belligerent, but nevertheless involved. And I mean, how would you even sum up the past year? Yeah, wow. Uh, what a year. It's hard to believe we are rapidly approaching the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion into Ukraine. You know, February 24th, 2022, that's literally when, when that day started the, the invasion in the, on the grounds of Ukraine. And so I don't think at the time, as we were intimately involved with watching the activity and seeing what was happening, I don't think any of us expected we would be here nearly a year later, still talking about the same thing. I, I think that that's one thing that always stands out to me is this conflict has been unique, unique. And I'm sure we'll speak about some of the unique attributes and technologies and the way we've been able to monitor it. But to me, that's been a big part of this year. Um, for me personally, to be involved in watching what's been happening, our company as a whole, in serving our customers, um, looking at other technologies that we can now start employing better both now as well in the near future. Um, that, that's kind of the way I see it at the, the macro level. You know, at the macro level, I mean, how has it affected your company? Um, it's been probably the busiest I think we've we've been in many, many years. You know, just the, frankly, the media attention that we've received, the customer in interest that we're getting, the, the complexity of having to deal with a live conflict um, from the political, the military, again, our customers, um, all across all cylinders, we're, we're humming at a very, very rapid pace. We're, of course, building new technologies and new capabilities. We've had a lot of new people come and join the company. So on all of those fronts, um, some of which are directly related to the war, some of which are, are less directly related, it's been extraordinarily busy for our company. You know, you have an intelligence background, and I'm sure that you've seen a lot, but still, did anything surprise you? And I'm speaking specifically about Maxar's experience. Yeah, I, I, in fact, um, a couple of my colleagues and I were talking about this the other day, and there was an analogy that was being raised of if you go way back in our history books, and at the beginning of the Gulf War, and this is when you know the U.S. was preparing to try and push Iraq back out of Kuwait, and, and as I'm sure many of your listeners will remember, I'm sure you do too, Laura, there was the beginning of what was the I broadcast. I am that old. Yeah, me, I'm right beside you. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, it, it was the beginning of live TV that was broadcasting literally in the middle of this conflict in, in Iraq at, at that time. And I think that really kind of marked a, a turning point, if you will, for the way conflict was being broadcast and really revealed. I think the war in Ukraine has been similar, this time with a different technology. And of course, it's commercial satellite imagery, along with drone imagery, along with social media. And so I think we we are now in this unprecedented and historical event where the war in Ukraine has been monitored in a wholly different way, but I believe that's the new way that'll be going forward as well. So it's this new incredible technology that's open, it's unclassified, it can be shared, it's very current. People can visually understand when we're sending out an image that shows artillery craters in the field 
in the middle of eastern Ukraine or a damaged city um, in a way that just wasn't done 10, 15, 20 years ago. Maxner provides roughly 400,000 U.S. government users with unclassified on-demand access to high-resolution commercial imagery, some of which is thought to be shared with the government of Ukraine. And then there's the news media and the NGOs working in Ukraine, and all of these products are from four imaging satellites. Has there been any kind of coordination with the U.S. government about what sort of information and analysis that can or cannot be provided? So we, you know, again, at the 100,000 foot level view, or in our case, you know, the 385 mile view from our satellites, we coordinate very closely with the U.S. government. As a reminder, we are, you know, heavily regulated. Our whole industry in the U.S. commercial remote sensing industry is heavily regulated. We have to have a license uh, that is approved by the U.S. government to do what we do. The U.S. government is one of our biggest customers. So there is constant coordination and communication. But but specifically to answer your question, when we release images to the news media, we're not getting permission per se. We don't ask for permission, nor do we need to, for releasing an image of one of the issues we're working right now is the Turkish earthquake. We don't need to, to ask for that permission. That said, based on our background, based on our coordination that we have, based on our knowledge of things that could be sensitive or perceived as sensitive, we're careful. It doesn't mean we're always perfect, but we we try and really you know, take the right balance approach to releasing information that we think will be useful and valuable, but not providing anything that could put people in harm's way. And all of this imagery, you know, has helped in ensuring the truth is known about Russia's and Ukraine's activities on the ground. Yet Russia has officially stated that they think commercial space companies that do business with Ukraine's uh, Ministry of Defense, I mean, even through third parties, are legitimate targets. As a potential target, what does Maxar expect or hope, you know, from the U.S. government in the way of pr- protection, or, or or does it? I'm not going to, for obvious reasons, get into a whole lot of details about some of the security issues associated with this topic. But I think, again, at the general level, we have this type of discussion very frequently with the U.S. government. Um, I know the U.S. government from policymakers on down through the intelligence community and the Department of Defense are very much aware of those statements by the Russians. It's not just with imaging satellites. It's also being directed at communications satellites, um, Starlink terminals, things of that nature. But but I think it's something that that is, of course, worth uh, watching for an industry, not specific to Maxar. This there are plenty of other you know satellite imagery companies that are also involved in this this type of operation, and it's something that I think um, has to be considered very seriously when we're talking about threats to space-based infrastructure, and uh, it is something that that is going to be a continued area of focus for, I'm sure, for many. Now, here's actually my last question. You know, when you look back at the year, what would be your number one lesson that you think that Maxar, the company, or perhaps you as as somebody who is working at Maxar, you know, what lesson do you think has been learned? Or, or would there be something that, you know, you do differently now that you understand better, you know, how things are used in conflict? Yeah, I, upon reflection of that for a second, I mean, I think I'm first and foremost, I'm proud of what our company has been able to do. I think we've played an important role in helping to explain to the world what is happening in the war in Ukraine. It hasn't always been easy to get out the information um, for a variety of different factors, you know, between just literally the magnitude 
to be able to, to precisely convey things that are most important um, is always going to be a challenge, at least for me personally. The good news is we're, you know, we're building new capabilities like machine learning and artificial intelligence that begins to help us sift through this mountain of material even faster. But, but legitimately, that's been a challenge is that we've had a lot of material to, to look through and some very compelling examples to be able to share. But I, I think that's ultimately my biggest takeaway is that we played a role, albeit perhaps a, a small role, in explaining to the world what's happening you know, as Russia has invaded Ukraine. Um, we do this around the world for a lot of different things, but this conflict, I think, will always stand out in my memory as a historical time, um, both on our capabilities and on the reception that it's, it's had in the world and the mission that we play. Steve, thank you so much for your time. Laura, it's my pleasure. And now to discuss the policy questions that this war has raised and brought to the fore for the commercial space industry, defense, even the civil sector, when you consider that the debris field from Russia's ASAT test threatened the International Space Station and the astronauts and cosmonauts on board. Here is my conversation with Chris and David. Hi, Chris. David, it's great to have you both back. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me back, Laura. You know, before we start, let's do a quick round of introductions. Chris, why don't you start? Sure. My name is Christopher Stone, and I am a uh, consultant and senior advisor with Core CSI, which is a uh, consulting firm in the D.C. metro area. And we work typically national security and intelligence uh, space-related issues. Um, I'm a former deputy uh, special assistant to the former deputy assistant secretary of defense for space policy. And uh, I'm also an author of a book called Reversing the Dow, a framework for credible space deterrence for those of you that might be interested. And David? Hello, I'm David Burbach. I'm a professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, I'm a civilian political scientist by background, and at the War College, I teach uh, U.S. foreign policy, defense planning, uh, and space security. All right. Thank you. And now let's begin. I think it's important to put Russia's war in Ukraine, you know, how this war is being fought and with what tools into context. And what I mean by that is, like, you know, the U.S. Civil War is thought to be the first real railway and locomotives conflict, while World War II is really all about the advancement um, and use of air power. Now, I'm not saying that this conflict is giving birth to space power with combatants buzzing around in spaceships, but David, you've been writing about this. How is this conflict different? Sure. And by the uh, I should say, first of all, that I'm speaking uh, for myself and not the Navy and everything I say here today. Um, but people often say that the first space war was the Persian Gulf War in 1991. And that was the and, you know, technically, even if you go back to Vietnam, you can find some you know relatively minor uses of U.S. Uh, space capabilities for tactical support. In 1991, that's when we really saw space capabilities like GPS and uh, wideband communications supporting major command posts and headquarters being used. Um, what we're seeing in Ukraine, that's sort of the, the next level up, 
is we're seeing space-based communications used down to very low tactical levels, uh, you know, individual uh, artillery uh, sections, uh, armored vehicles. Uh, we are seeing a very heavy use of tactical intelligence from satellites, um, and in particular, intelligence obtained from commercial satellites. Uh, for example, from uh, imaging from Maxar, uh, from Planet Labs, from Capella Space that run synthetic aperture radar satellites. So the Ukrainian side is able to get uh, some some detailed pictures of the battlefield uh, in a way that used to only be the sort of thing that the United States, uh, possibly the Soviet Union was able to do. Now they're able, the Ukraine's able to get actionable tactical uh, pictures of the battlefield and then use satellite technology to move that information around quickly enough um, that it's able to inform not just you know strategic questions like are is, are they massing to attack, but where exactly is an enemy unit and be able to direct artillery or uh, you know missile strikes on it quickly. Chris. You are my space power policy strategist. What are the implications, or maybe I should say lessons, you know, smaller nations who may not produce or even own any space assets, they may now have access to militarily significant space-derived intelligence products from third parties. And those third parties can be governments, but more likely they're they're going to be commercial. Well, yeah. I mean, you've got all sorts of companies like uh, like Steve from Maxar, uh, the Digital Globes of the World, uh, Planet, and others, um, as well as some overseas that are are providing everything from electro optical basic fic, you know pictures to radar shots, infrared, and other things to get different pieces of information about the battle space uh, or the world writ large. And sometimes those can be dual use, such as if you want to get um, information that may be helpful to land use management. A lot of the similar technology is used to help understand where tanks are, where they might be hiding, things of that sort. So I think that that you know it's become a little a lot more affordable uh, is one thing, as as uh, my distinguished colleague has mentioned. Um, but I will also say that um, it's just more of the access and the cost that's improved, even during Desert Storm. Um, you know, the U.S. government had to buy French commercial imagery um, in order to keep it from going into the hands of the Iraqi leadership. In the case of our commercial imagery uh, expansion that we've seen, you know, we, we have lots of contracts with them, too, uh, as well as our allies. And so basically being able to get that information shared is why commercial providers are definitely a lot easier. We can also get it to them faster, usually a process will take about 72 hours to use some of the special stuff um, that we, people are more familiar with. And I can tell you from personal experience, this is whether with a domestic emergency or overseas operations with allies and partners, that being able to say to your leadership or those of your friends and allies, hey, we can get you good information without having to use a lot of expensive air, uh, air fuel uh, different helicopters and stuff that puts people at risk. We can get a pretty good overview from different angles of what's going on, and you can save that gas for later. And they're very impressed by that. You know, or just to extend a, a little bit on what Chris said, um, it isn't simply that uh, the satellites exist. One thing that that is, has is been changing is it satellite data is big data. Um, and the just as important 
as the ability to collect more images is the fact that we're able to use modern computing technology to process them. Um, and that too can leverage capabilities that are, are dual use, if you want to think of it that way. For example, there are companies that purchase satellite data and will do computerized analysis to see, for example, how full are parking lots at shopping malls or, you know, look at like patterns of, you know, crops that have been planted or how many ships are coming in and out of a port in order to understand how the economy is doing. Well, that that's not unlike the kind of technology you would also use to not just be able to have an image that shows you some tanks, but be able to have a lot of images and have a lot of data processing going on to take some of that load off of photo interpreters and really have the, the analytic systems be able to spit out information that's already been processed and can really focus you on what matters. So this is partly about satellites. It, it's also about whether you want to call it AI, machine learning, big data, but it's very much the, the software and analytic tool side, uh, as well as the actual hardware and space. And I'll just mention one thing, David, that you, you made me think of, um, and I'm not sure if our listeners are aware of this. Most of them probably are, since this is a predominantly space audience, but you know, AGI, one of the companies that that produces a lot of great analytical tools that are used for some of this information. Um, there are ways that in, any person can get an app on their phone and track overflights of satellites. Mm -hmm. You can look at the geo belt. You can see which satellites are flying over, manned and unmanned, uh, within what's called the white catalog. The stuff that you that everybody usually tracks and stuff through U.S. Space Command and other places. And uh, so at, at, at your fingertips on your phone, you can track satellites, you can download satellite data, you can find out when satellites are going to possibly, uh, you know, cross paths and, and find ways to make decisions. And all of that done from a, a modern cell phone. Whereas before, you know, this basically like mission control centers or information centers used to take full rooms of computing power. So to your point of the computing power, you know, and in the at people's fingertips with with cell phones and laptops, you can you can pretty much have access to a lot of information if you're willing to pay for it. And what does this mean, though, when you think that you know, as you were just saying, this used to be you know huge rooms full of computing power and a lot of really smart people, but now you're saying that it could just go to whoever has the cash. This used to be the domain of big states, you know, like the USSR or maybe just China, uh, France, the United States. But Ukraine is able to access this, whether or not they have power. What does this mean for the future? Well, I'll still start by saying that I think it means that I'll, I'll back up first. First, yes, you can get that information, but you still need to be trained on how to exploit it. So not everybody that sees a tank moving or an armored personnel carrier moving may be able to go, oh, that's what that is. Uh, it, it depends on the resolution quality of the satellite data that the person or the country is purchasing. Um, as a result of that, um, that's why you have these, these commercial companies that create training plans. Uh, universities use these things. I mean, when you've got high schools launching small sats, <laughs> and you've got colleges, universities, and other smaller countries that are partnering with these companies to host payloads and things, um, you still have to be trained for it. So I think to your question, what does that mean for the future? I think it means that that, that the realm of the governments are probably going to remain the more exquisite um, special warfighting capabilities 
whereas the commercial sector has broadened to include more of what is known as state of the world, um, which is now opened up as a commercial market uh, for folks to leverage. And we just have to understand that. And that, that requires a lot of oversight by treaty. The governments are still the ones that are responsible for commercial activities in space and on the ground. So um, I think it just means that there's a lot of work to do to be able to ensure the partnerships are beneficial uh, for both the companies and the providers as well. So we'll see how that works out in the future, but that's something definitely to think about. And, and you know, while the the easy thing to fear is, oh my gosh, this technology is proliferating, um, I actually think this, this is probably a net plus for the U.S. and allies because the capability, especially on the data processing side, um, we're real world leaders in this. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think uh, any close U.S. ally would be willing to, you know, sell the most advanced imagery and analysis to Iran or North Korea. Um, that's not going to have, you know, no, no company based in a NATO ally or, or Japan or South Korea is, is likely to do that. Um, so this, you know, we, you know, our ability to provide countries that we are trying to help with this kind of rapid intelligence support uh, and analytic capability from space and communications from space, um, you know, I, I think is probably a net advantage to, to the U.S. and Western allies generally. Um, you know, if you had to choose between, you know, and it's not zero on the Chinese side, but if you had to choose between um, what you'd be able to get from Chinese and uh, uh, companies or state-owned enterprises that are willing to distribute outside of China versus what you could get from the U.S. or or from Western Europe with full government backing saying it's okay, give the, you know, give the, give this partner everything you can. Um, I, I'd much rather have the assistance from the U.S. and its allies in terms of what kind of capabilities they could bring. And also from a strategic standpoint, one thing to keep in mind with regard to Russia and Ukraine is Russia... The, their understanding of warfare is something that they like to call wars of controlled chaos. And part of that is an information uh, operational, you know, warfighting standpoint, viewpoint of things that, you know, they haven't been doing very well at. And I think part of that is because of the ability for us to share these, these really well created uh, and proliferated commercial imagery uh, services as well, whether it's, you know, and also communication like Starlink and things of that sort. Um, so I think it's definitely to the advantage to your point, David, I think that is a good advantage for us from our, from a partnership standpoint as well. It, it would be an interesting war college kind of question to look at the Russian planning that led up to the war and see what assumptions did they make about what Ukraine would be able to get from the West? Uh, did they just grossly underestimate the kind of space-based communications and space-based uh, intelligence that Ukraine would be able to purchase or be provided? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they assumed that, it, you know, they. we do know that they did hack uh, the uh, satellite system that Ukraine relied on before the war, Viasat. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to find that Russia really grossly underestimated uh, what Ukraine would be able to do, you know, how they could make use of space-based capabilities with assistance from the West. I think there's that, and just to tie in you know, what Chris was saying, when we talk about, you know, using those tools and, and getting allies, you know, Ukraine's been really, really good at this. Yeah. And they have done that by being able to 
control the story of David beating Goliath. And they have the pictures to show it. You know, every time there was just says, oh, no, no, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, really? Wow. You know, what? what's that carnage? Oh, right. Those were fighter jets. No kidding. Uh-huh. Right. So it's it's been very interesting because nobody can really hide. I mean, even if Ukrainians... Uh, uh, commit some sort of, you know, war crime, they can't hide either. I mean, there's a real uh, interesting level of of truth that can be seen because we have access to space assets. We also know that there's a strong push coming from Congress and also from the Department of Defense to, quote, buy what we can, build what we must, unquote. And that can mean contracting with space-based service providers like Maxar or Starlink or Amazon, right, such as the whole data and computing power. And this can be done at the edge on satellites. All of these companies have dedicated defense-focused business divisions, but what if they're targeted by one of our adversaries? I mean, do we defend them? Oh, I, I think that's an important policy question, and I I don't think we have answered it yet. This is still something that I think the U.S. government, allied governments are going to have to consider. I mean, even, even with the, the relatively small but still real attack, uh, cyber attack by Russia on Viasat, uh, that caused losses for commercial companies in Europe that relied on it. Uh, Viasat itself is spending tens of millions of dollars replacing the ground terminals that Russia, uh, it, actually, it didn't simply cut off access briefly. It actually requires the terminals to be replaced entirely. So that's a fairly significant expense for Viasat. Um, what do we do? I mean, do we count that as an attack on NATO or, or collateral damage from a Russian military attack? Um, so this, this, in fact, uh, this is an area that I, I don't think we as a US as the US government have fully figured this out and i'm not sure the commercial sector knows exactly what they want to ask for um do you know does the do does the commercial sector expect us government you know satellite weapon defense interceptors around their satellites Probably not, especially not when you have thousands of satellites for these mega constellations. Um, do they want sort of an implied policy of deterrence that if you attack Starlink or Maxar satellites, it would be similar to if you attacked U.S. government-owned satellites? Um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, we we have not, I think, fully thought this through um you know it's because it's partly because it's it's such a new issue i mean in ukraine i think has really shown just how quickly we're going to have to come up with policy here but i i think this is one of the the major policy concerns uh that we've got to deal with for us national security space yeah i'll i'll just say this um from 2007 forward since the chinese he said demonstration and all the other demonstrations that have happened since then, there have been several hearings in Congress where commercial providers of various types, whether transportation, satellite providers, or whatnot, have argued before Congress that they want to see their their stuff protected by the Space Force and U.S. Space Command. If you look at the Unified Command Plan, um, the area of responsibility for U.S. Space Command is 100 kilometers and up, which basically means their responsibilities for anything and everything at 100 kilometers and beyond. That's that's pretty much the biggest area of responsibility of any of the combatant commands. Unfortunately, they're not really equipped to handle the situation. Um, another one of the guests that you've had on before, um, I believe, and if not, I, you probably should, his name is Josh Carlson. 
and Peter Gerritsen and those guys, they, they typically have written a lot about um, sort of a maritime theory for space. And a lot of that discussion has been happening in policy circles over the last few years related to liability conventions, outer space treaties, things of that sort, um, about do we treat um, satellites and other spacecraft like we do maritime vessels? Because if you look at space treaties, every satellite, commercial, civil, or military is considered flagged by the United States. And so as such, because we're responsible for their behavior, for their operational safety, and things of that sort, up and up in orbit and back down to Earth again, that we pretty much, I think we have the, the ground, uh, the, the foundations, that is, to ground us in a decision-making for that. Um, but people do want that. We also have the commercial providers engaging in exercises and war games with the Space Force, along with the allies, um, the Commercial Space Operations Center is tied in well with the uh, Combined Forces Space Component Command of U.S. Space Command out in California and the National Defense uh, National Space Defense Center in Colorado. So I think that those, those questions are being answered. I think they're being developed as we speak. Um, from a policy perspective, I think the answer should be, yes, we, we need to protect them. Um, but at the same time, we need to have the capability to do so. And until we can build up the Space Force and U.S. Space Command to have the capacity to do that, um, especially with with larger proliferated constellations and even layered approaches like missile warning that I've talked with you guys about before. I think we need to consider all those avenues, but we, sh we shouldn't put this off as something to think about for later. This is a now problem, and it needs to be discussed sooner than later. And finally, if there was one lesson that you've learned from this uh, conflict uh, that Russia is having in Ukraine, for space policy or for space defense or for defending our, our on-orbit um, assets, uh, what would that be? And Chris, why don't you go first? Well, I'll, I'll take a different approach on this. I will say that I'm not so worried about the lessons learned on, on the, on, from the current conflict. I think we're obviously observing that. And I think as time goes on, we'll figure that out. A lot of people are writing articles and stuff saying that the future of space is reversible and EW and cyber and, and all that. And because Russia hasn't gone full guns blazing uh, with lasers and directed energy and ASAP missiles, that therefore that's not the wave of the future. I think the biggest lesson learned is that we don't take the wrong lessons learned. In other words, don't do what everybody tends to do during a conflict or after a conflict and assume that the future will be exactly like the conflict that we're seeing right now. I think Ukraine, Russia is sort of unique. I think there are a lot of things that we'll see continuing in the future. I think reversible space is something that you'll definitely see, but I wouldn't based on the, the Russian propensity for uh, the traditional use of force. Which is and blowing things up real good. Blowing things up. So like if you want to get rid of a building in Aleppo, Syria, just level the whole town of Aleppo. If you, if you want to take care of a terrorist cell in Grozny, level Grozny. They have a mixed viewpoint with information. They view that they're at war with the West for quite some time. And as a result of that, I think we need to understand their viewpoint. We need to understand that they're building these weapon systems and there's other things going on in space that may not be getting public attention. And as a result of that, I think we need to be very careful that we don't take the wrong lessons learned and assume the future is going to be more benign than it should, than it probably will be. 
Well, I, uh, I I partly agree. I may have a few uh, a few differences of perspective, but I think that the general point that we shouldn't overlearn lessons from from this war, um, I think is actually a good one. China's got substantially different space capabilities than Russia. Uh, you know, Russia at this point has you know nowhere near the sort of ISR capability in space that China does. Um, and uh, if it were an actual U.S.-China conflict. While for you know for many while for Starlink there is the situation that with what they're almost up to three thousand satellites now it's very hard to see how physical attacks against three thousand satellites is going to be a very attractive prospect for Russia. Um, if we were fighting China, you know we still only have a couple of dozen GPS satellites, or we still have some key ISR satellites that are relatively small in number. Um, so I, I I don't actually disagree that there you know we we shouldn't assume that well because Russia couldn't do anything about Elon Musk and Starlink. Um, it shows that space is now suddenly switched from an offense dominant to kind of a you know defensive dominant system. That said, I, I do think a key lesson out of Ukraine is to reinforce this this you know paradigm switch towards focusing on small, resilient, uh, reconstitutable constellations. Um, and I, I think you know that there had already been that way of thinking within U.S. Space Force and and people pushing for reform of how we approach space. Um, so I, I actually do think I'm becoming a little bit less worried about the Pearl Harbor and space prospect. Um, the ability that that I'm I'm a little less worried about. Um, the degree to which space is incredibly fragile and offense dominant, which leads in two directions. You either, therefore, try and have everybody leave space alone, or you're prepared to you know, go to a full preemptive, take everything the other guy has out first, um, which is a pretty scary scenario between nuclear armed superpowers. So I, I'm, I'm hoping, although again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to take. Hope is not a strategy. Uh, well, fair, fair enough, fair enough. But I, I do think there are some indicators from Ukraine um, that we, uh, you know, the, there may be some, you know, certain types of capabilities may be more resilient in the future. Um, and I probably would still expect to see a real heavy reliance uh, in the first instances on cyber jamming, you know, other reversible sorts of attacks. In fact, keep in mind, Russia didn't have to do anything to satellites at all to take out the Viasat capability. That was entirely uh, a, a cyber attack on uh, ground management systems, which then uh, affected ground terminals. Uh, and I, I think we we need to think about systems that way. I don't need to take out a private company's satellites if I'm able to hack their data center and take away the capability of their people somewhere in California to process the data coming from their satellites. Well, I'll just I'll just add that um, I think the future, whether it's Russia or China, given their you know attempted partnership, I'm I'm still not holding my breath that that's going to be anything lasting yet, but. Um, the the approach that our adversaries tend to go is is a what's called a multi-layered attack structure. China does have definitely a lot more you know functioning things at this point than Russia, but Russia still has you know decades of of experience that uh, you, you probably shouldn't ignore. And they have the ability to do a lot of things that China is just now doing. Whether or not they can uh, afford it, whether or not they can deploy it in a certain amount of time. Um, I believe that, as we've seen in Ukraine, that if they have a weapon, they'll use it. They've used hypersonics for something as as short term as as Ukraine, which is interesting. They've threatened nuclear weapons, which they do a lot as part of their their posturing. But 
you know, based on all my studies of Putin, <laughs> I never want to take that for granted as just a threat. So I, I just I believe that we we need to understand that while the future may have a lot of cyber and reversible activity, um, because it's it's less uh, attributable in some cases, and just because we're going to in some cases large constellations, it doesn't mean that there's not a way to do that. For example, the Chinese and the Russians are taking notes, but the Chinese have already been working on system destruction concepts that leverage all major avenues of strike simultaneously. So you could do a cyber attack, you could jam with EW, you could uh, fry something uh, based on that, and you could choose various satellites. And it doesn't take a whole lot of satellites to make a constellation ineffective or less effective. And they may not need to destroy the whole thing to achieve their objective, whether that's a psychological objective uh, to induce fear, whether it's to slow down the response of NATO or U.S. forces whether it's to slow down decision-making cycles uh, of, of allies and partners um, or things of that sort. You know, I, I mean, I, I just would, would caution that while um, some, like, like I think you said, David, that you're not as worried about a space Pearl Harbor, at least not from the Russians, um, I'm still one that until, we, until I think that we are at a position where we can defend and protect and actively deter um, these kinds of attacks across the entire counter space spectrum, which is doable. Um, I'm not going to take anything for granted at this point. Fair, fair enough. I, 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 I don't see it as, I mean, I, you know, I, I can't rule it out and I'll say I, uh, while I may work for the Navy, I, in order to be able to have conversations like this, I stay strictly away from any, anything classified. So, you know, you know, perhaps perhaps there's something i'm missing um but i just it's very hard to see it being in in china or russia's interest to escalate you know to to start off with that kind of a we're just going to destroy everything first strike i mean unless we really are at that level of sort of outright nuclear you know if, if we're if we're at the point that we're we're launching our strategic forces at each other um you know losing space is only going to be part of what we're worried about at that point we're going to be worried about losing cities so i'm 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 not quite as as certain that that it you know that that we go up to to you know that the we we turn the dial all the way up immediately quite so fast well and i don't think you should couple nuclear weapons and space strikes um given some of the different viewpoints of of war fighting in both russia and china i think that there is a distinctive a distinction that china and russia both see our space area as an area of weakness that is to their words low threshold attack because Things have been happening every day, as General Thompson has said, on the low threshold, and yet we've done very little uh, to do anything responsive to it. SpaceX, as you mentioned, did have a pretty good response, and a lot of the the space weapons officers and things that have been observing that thought it was, quote, eye-watering. I'm assuming that's positive eye-watering and not negative eye-watering, mm-hmm. but... Uh, but at the same, like te- at the same, tears of joy. We hope tears of joy. But <laughs> I, but I, but I assume you know again based on everything that I've seen in in my years of experience and all my my studying of of open source materials and other materials that have come out. Um, I'm not saying they're going to attack every satellite simultaneously, but there is there is I think a little too much comfort in the resiliency argument of the numerous satellites proliferated targets, and therefore that complicates it. I think that. Uh, 
most anti-satellite missiles are, are, are expensive, but they're not as expensive as launching 2,000 vehicles, even the smaller, more inexpensive kind, especially when you're recycling them every three to five years uh, in order to keep them in the low orbits, which is why I've argued for a sort of a resiliency in depth, whereas it's not you're not just clogging up low Earth orbit with, with lots of small satellites that makes it you know more entertaining for them to target, but you also have uh, stuff further out, which is a lot harder to target than the low stuff. So with the fact that China and Russia are working at ways to do these multi-layered strike options with all the different options at their disposal, cyber, reversible, EW, high-powered microwaves, things of that sort, as well as the on-orbit stuff and kinetic weapons, which they're all big fans of over there. I, I just think we need to be a little more open to the prospect that, um, you know, that's not a panacea, but we need to definitely look at having mm -hmm. proactive measures we can take beyond simply assuming that resiliency is the answer and therefore they're not going to want to do that because it'll escalate to nuclear. Most Chinese and Russian writings since the end of the Cold War have sort of decoupled that unless you target something of a uh, nuclear command and control type of situation. And even then, uh, based on their unique worldviews, it's sometimes harder to see um, what is considered a first strike or not a first strike in their mindset. So we have to be willing to be more proactive in order to match them. In my view. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we want here on The Downlink. Gentlemen, we have run out of time. Thank you both so much. No problem. Thank you, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow The Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.